Well, good morning again, everyone. Go ahead and open up your uh, Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, before I start on that, I just want to comment on that last song we just sang, Crucified. Uh, how extraordinary is it that we sing a song about someone's death in a victorious manner? There's a, there's a lot of very sad funeral songs about uh, fu- funerals and death, but none so victorious as the death of our Lord Jesus. Well, we've got a good, strong, practical lesson today that Paul shares with Timothy. And I want to just remind, uh, start off by way of reminder what we've covered for the last couple weeks um, in the book of 2 Timothy. This is, uh, as we remember, this is Paul's final letter to Timothy, his final charge. And uh, he's got some very important things on his mind for Timothy to do and to live out uh, as part of the church at Ephesus. And uh, I'm just going to start reading from the top of chapter 2 by way of reminder, and then I'll go all the way through verse 5, which is our verse for today. It reads, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You must therefore endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So, Paul is laying out a series of illustrations for Timothy. Um, he, last week we looked at the illustration of the soldier. This week we look at the illustration of the athlete. And next week, Lord willing, we look at the illustration of the farmer. And all of these illustrations are tied to Timothy's role within the church as a leader, who's been commissioned by Paul and by the Lord. And Timothy has a war to fight, a race to run, and the gospel to plant. And so we're going to look at all three of those things um, in in the series of weeks that we're in right now, starting last week, this week being the middle, and next week being the conclusion. So let's look at the athlete. First off, it says in verse 5, and also if anyone competes in athletics. Well, I got news for you. If we're talking about an athlete being a representation of a Christian, if you're signed up to be a Christian, you're in the competition. <laughs> there's, uh, there's no red shirts this season. There's no uh, backups. We're all, we're all in it. And uh, it talks in this verse about someone who's competing has to compete according to the rules. And so that's where we're going to spend a good chunk of time today is talking about uh, what are the rules. So what are the, the, the rules in sports? What's, what's the importance of a rule to sports? Well, I can think of two reasons that sports have rules. First off, the rules of a, of a sport define what the sport is. If I hand you a round ball about yay big, you may not have any idea what to do with it. Are we playing basketball? Are we playing soccer? Are we playing volleyball? You know... We play in something else. There's lots of sports with a round ball (laughs) about this big. 
But it's the rules of a sport that define what the sport is. And if I say volleyball, that conjures into your mind a certain set of rules. And if I say basketball, it's an altogether different set of rules, isn't it? And so you know what you're about. And some sports only have a few rules. Like, I can't imagine that, and I haven't played this sport directly, but I can't imagine that the sport of shot put has that many rules. Here's the ball, that way. <laughs> it's about it, right? And sure, there's rules about where you have to stand and all that sort of stuff, but it's pretty straightforward. But on the other hand, a sport like baseball has a lot of rules, right? There's rules about where you stand. There's rules about what the pitcher can and can't do. There's rules about running the bases. There's rules about the positions. There's rules about what goes on in which half of the inning and <laughs> player substitutions. And there's a whole fat book of baseball rules that everybody has to know. And uh, I brought an illustration here. My parents are going to know exactly what this is when I pull it out. Does this look familiar? This is... Uh, the t-ball bat that I used when I was seven years old. So it's, it's been around a little while. You can see it's pretty scarred because I didn't always hit baseballs with it. It may have encountered a few rocks and other <laughs> uh, things of that sort. Um, but this was a uh, prime implement in teaching me how to follow rules. Because one of the first rules that I learned is after you get up there, and that ball's right there on the tee, it's nice and easy to hit, it's sitting right there. After you hit that ball, don't throw the bat. That was one of the first rules I learned. And why, why was that rule there? Well, it didn't have anything to do with the nature of the sport, but it had to do with safety. And so that's another reason that there's rules in sports. So it's two reasons. One, you gotta know what to do. And second of all, you gotta be safe while you're doing it, because a thrown bat, has resulted in a lot of pain and hardship for, uh, for the person on the receiving end. There's rules. You can't swing the bat unless you're either in the batter's box, up to bat, or if you're in the on-deck circle. You can't just swing a bat around anywhere. You get in trouble for that sort of thing. I'm swinging this bat around a little bit up here on the stage at a safe distance from all of you. <laughs> right? So it's, it's there for safety. And this, this taught me a lot about rules. Remember another rule that I learned uh, when I was playing t-ball? Uh, once day, I clobbered the ball particularly well, and I didn't hit it over the fence. It bounced right before the fence, and the fence wasn't very tall, and it hopped over the fence. And I thought, all right, I made it over the fence. And so I'm rounding the bases, and someone says, oh, no, no, you have to stop at second. It's a ground rule double. And I thought, ground rule double? What, what's, what is this nonsense? They said, it's, it's part of the rules. Okay, so I had to stop at second. I thought I hit a home run, so I was a little disappointed. <laughs> but the rules for the Christian faith are similar in that there's rules that are put out there to define what is it that we believe in, right? So the doctrines that are put forth in the church, they're there to define what do we believe. We believe that Jesus Christ is God, right? We, we believe that God the Father, God the Son... And God, the Holy Spirit, are one God and yet three parts. We call that doctrine the Trinity, right? There's all sorts of, um, for, we call them doctrine, but you could also call them rules. That's, it defines what we believe, right? We believe that Jesus came to earth as a baby, uh, died for our sins on the cross, was buried, and on the third day he rose again, right? 
It's the core tenet of our faith. And without those things laid forth, clearly we don't know what we're about or what we believe in. And so all these things are laid forth in the Bible for us to believe in as part of the faith. If you subscribe to some other teaching, well, then you're not a Christian. You're some other uh, cult or sect that doesn't actually believe what the Bible says, right? But you're not a Christian unless you believe what God says. So it defines what we're about. And second of all, the things laid forth in the scriptures are there for our safety, right? There's good behaviors to follow that when they are followed, you see life, you see relationship with God, you see eternal substance there. But when they're not followed, you see consequences, you see sin, you see people getting hurt, relationships being damaged, churches falling apart because of not following what the Bible says. And so that's why Paul's using this analogy of an athlete. He's saying, look, if you're part of the church, a leader in the church, you got to com- be competing by the rules. you got to know what you're about. And so all of this uh, put together... Um, is a strong encouragement to Timothy to say, this is, you know what you have to do, right? Remember we talked about in chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, um, Paul says, follow the pattern of sound words that I've given you, right? And we talked about the pattern being a, um, an outline to, to follow for success. And we also know that the, um, what Paul's given are not just for our uh, benefit in being part of the church, but they're for our own personal walk as well. And you can think of Psalm 23, right, where it says, you lead me in the paths of righteousness for you, your name's sake. Right? It's a familiar psalm to all of us. Why is it precious? Because it tells us that the Lord has our best interests in mind. And so as he leads us in the paths of righteousness, it's for our benefit. But there's also a warning in this verse It says he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And that means if you follow the rules and you're successful, you win. But if you don't follow the rules, even if it looks like you crossed the finish line first, if you didn't follow the rules, you're disqualified. And uh, there's a a passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. Paul says... Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty... Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And Paul's talking about doing, living out his life in uh, moderation and keeping his body in subjection so that he's not disqualified in this great uh, competition of the Christian life. And he talks about Someone who competes in athletics, again, he says they're temperate in all things, right? It means they're, they're moderate. They don't 
You don't see a uh, sprinter eating a huge amount of food day by day and getting grossly overweight. Because when it comes time for him to sprint, he's going to have all that extra weight to lug down the track with him. If you've ever, ever looked at the Olympic athletes, you can see those folks don't have an extra ounce of fat on them anywhere. And it's because they're moderate in all things. Now, if they're willing to spend that much dedication to obtain a perishable crown and a fleeting reward, Paul says, how much more then should I exercise uh, dedication and diligence and temperance in my own life because I have an imperishable eternal crown to win. And uh, Stephen talked about this a couple weeks ago when he talked about uh, mortifying the body and putting it to death. Right? It's the, uh, he was talking about the spirit and the flesh being at war with one another. And that all the lusts of the body that would distract us from the, the true race to win um, we, have to, we have to overcome those lusts and those impulses. Our body's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's something that God gave to us. But it has a lot of desires that can lead to excess that are extremely harmful in the spiritual world, even though it's just a physical body. It has implications. So Paul says... Um, Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. And so that's really the whole, um, if, I had to, if I had to sum up the whole sermon, it would be run in such a way as to obtain the prize. This is what Paul's saying to Timothy. He says, look, he says, I understand the struggles and the hardships you're going through. Remember, we just talked about the soldier having to endure hardship, right? It's not easy. The Christian life is not easy. But he says, there's a prize to be won, and so run in such a way as to obtain it. And remember, uh, a couple weeks back, we looked at the example of Anesiphorus. That was certainly a man uh, running the race in such a way as to obtain the prize. And we can see his ex- extreme selflessness in, in his dealings with Paul. And uh, Paul writes again in another encouragement using the uh, analogy of a competitor Uh, In Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Lord Jesus came to this earth out of love for us, and it says that it was for the joy that was set before Him that He endured even the cross and the shame contained therein so that He could sit down at the right hand of His Father once again. And that must have been incredible joy, having completed that competition, that, that endurance race, as it were, for him to sit down at the right hand of his father and say, Father, what you have given me to do, I have done. And we Christians also have a, 
a reward waiting for us in heaven if we compete well. And so I think I uh, talked about that a little bit with the example of Vanessa Forrest, but it, it bears repeating because it's repeated all over in the scripture. So if I repeat it, God did it first. <laughs> um, and that we can't forget that we have an eternal prize waiting for us. And that what we do here in this life will strongly influence the reward that we get. The Lord says, I want to reward you with all these good things, but I need you to compete according to the rules so that I may give you the full reward of what you're doing. And notice also in this uh, verse in Hebrews that it says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And it's extremely similar to what we just looked at in verse 4 where it says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. These two ideas are connected um, very keenly in that if you're going to engage in anything from a sprint to a marathon, it doesn't matter how long your race is, you don't want to be schlepping any other extra stuff with you, right? You don't, it may be good for an athlete to eat, but you don't see a sprinter running down the track with a plate of food, right? He's laid that aside for the time being because he's got to focus on the race. He may train with weights on his back or weights on his legs to strengthen himself, but when it comes time for him to compete in the competition, you got to lay that stuff aside. And furthermore, you don't just lay aside all the stuff that you train with. It says to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. No track runner is going to tie his own legs up in a net and then try and compete. Look more like a sack race (laughs) than a sprint, wouldn't it? And there's a similar encouragement to Christians. If you're, look, if you're going about the Christian life, sin snares us, it tangles us, it makes us fall short of the reward that we could have received if we hadn't fallen into it. And there may be hurdles on the track, but that's a lot different than a snare that binds one up and leaves you immobile and weak and uh, helpless and at the mercy of whatever comes along next. An animal on a snare, the whole point of it being in a snare is so that the hunter, when it comes along, the animal's not dead yet, but when the hunter gets there, it will be. Right? The animal's helpless. And sin's the same way. When we get snared up in it, it may not be that that kills us, but it's going to leave us vulnerable and helpless for whatever comes along next. And that's the warning that is in this verse in Hebrews. Lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. Don't be helpless. We have an adversary who walks about like a roaring lion seeking who he he may devour. And if we're caught in a snare when he comes by... That's it. We'll be disqualified <laughs> at, the, at the very least. So there's good encouragements to lay aside the traps and the snares and the weights. But there's also, of course, and I've, I've talked about this a couple times, but again, God repeats himself, so I'm going to keep, I'll come back to the same point again. Um, when I, when I, When someone who's trained in track eats, right, they eat the good nutritious food that they need to help them compete 
but they don't eat too much, but they also don't eat too little. You wouldn't think of a track star eating one good meal on a Sunday morning and going out and training for the rest of the week on that one meal. But too often times as Christians, we're tempted to do the very same thing. One good time here on Sunday morning being filled with the Word, and then if you're running out over the rest of the week, <laughs> you may grow a little weak, a little faint. Get back in the Word. Be fed again. Take regular times in the Word and in prayer, just like an uh, athlete regularly partakes of that sustenance that he needs to keep going. And just like the more strenuous athletes may need more food than the average person, so too, if we're really running hard, we may need to spend more time in prayer. We may need to spend more time in the Word to receive that sustenance and encouragement to keep ourselves going. But you can't eat like Michael Phelps and his famous diet if you're not putting out the same amount of work. I read somewhere that Michael Phelps and his training regimen swims something like 30 miles a week on an average week. I don't walk 30 miles a week. <laughs> and Michael Phelps is out there pouring his heart out swimming 30 miles a week. And he needs all that food. And so, too, if we're going to labor in the gospel, we need to get the proper sustenance to maintain what we're doing. And if you find yourself going a while without partaking of the good nourishment of the Word of God, you might think, well, maybe I'm not putting out enough effort and using what I'm learning here. And it may be time to step up your training <laughs> regimen. It may be time to step up your boldness for the gospel. And you'll find that you need the Bible. And furthermore, in our illustration, this isn't in the verse, but I'm going to tie it in anyway because it has relevance um, to the passage and to the Christian walk. You'll see very few athletes compete without learning from a coach. And a, a coach is very important for a lot of ways. I remember I had a, a lot of different coaches uh, when I was playing baseball in the seven or eight years that I played. Some of the coaches were quite good, taught the fundamentals uh, solidly taught how to think, how to act, to know what the situation is, to be ready what to do in each situation. And those were the good coaches. <clears throat> the bad, <clears throat> pardon me, the uh, bad coaches um, only taught you about one or two situations, and they didn't teach you how to think about the game or how to prepare. They just had you do the same drills over and over and over again. And you could get really good at one task, but especially in a game like baseball, there's a lot of different scenarios. You've got to learn how to hit. You've got to learn how to throw. You've got to learn how to field and to catch and to know what to do if there's base runners on base and what to do at the different positions. And for the coaches that didn't teach us all the necessary skills, you could see that some people were better, like some people would be really good hitters, but when it got time to go out on the field, they didn't know how to field or vice versa. And... Uh, so a good coach is really important to the success of an athlete. And uh, I remember um, one coach, I had a, a hitting coach that did a very odd thing. Um, I was standing there with a bat, and he was standing there with a bucket of baseballs. 
And he says, I'm going to set the baseballs aside for a minute. And he took a, a plastic bag out of his pocket. And I'm looking at him funny. He says, we're going to learn how to hit these. And he had a bag of pinto beans. <laughs> and uh, so he stood about 10, 15 feet away from me and threw the pinto beans. And I had to try and hit those little guys. <laughs> Let me tell you, that was a challenge. But I learned something. I learned how to track a moving object a lot better trying to hit those little pinto beans. And boy, when I saw a baseball coming, I was like, oh boy, <laughs> I can hit that. <laughs> and so that good coaching skill taught me a lot about the game and how to compete well. And so too, the leadership in a church is necessary for teaching the church how to go about and use those skills, how to encourage one another, how to study your Bible, how to pray effectively, how to speak the gospel to others, how to bear one another's burdens and love, how to notice needs that the assembly has. All those things are taught by the leadership, and good leadership teaches all those necessary skills. And bad leadership doesn't give much direction at all or just has a few things gone over by rote over and over again. And those things don't add to the growth of the body. You have to do team exercises. If you're on a team, you do things as a team. And sure, there may be individual skills that you may have to take time working on. But the best thing you can do as a team is to do a team exercise. If you want to teach a shortstop how to do his role properly, you don't take him out there on the diamond and put him out there by himself and hit the ball to him. What's he do with it next? He needs a first baseman to throw it to. He needs a second baseman to be playing backup or to help him turn a double play. He may need a third baseman if there's runners in advanced positions, right? He may, he may need outfielders out there so that he can practice his cutoff skills. So if there's a deep ball hot out there, they can throw it to him and he can throw it in and know where to go. There's a lot of situations. And if he's, if he's out there by himself, he's not getting the proper training required for his position. So a good coach is really important. And uh, I think a lot of people here are familiar with the movie Cool Runnings. came out a while ago. With, uh, and it was a story about the, the beginnings of the Jamaican bobsled team. And uh, sure, things are done in a humorous light. It's, it's a Disney movie. And they got uh, John Candy, uh, who's a really good comedian, uh, to play the, the coach. And uh, the whole idea is, is you take four guys who know absolutely nothing about ice and snow because they live in Jamaica, and you teach them how to compete on a world-class bob track race, bobsled race. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the beginnings of it are really humorous. He gets a sled, and there's no ice or snow in Jamaica, so he makes this downhill street, uh, and they go up there with this wagon with wheels on it, and they just learn how to push start that and jump in and go, go down the hill on the wagon. And it's hilarious the first time they try and do it because they've never trained on it. And as all four of them try and jump in the wagon all at once, the tip, thing tips over and they all go rolling on the ground. But because he's a good coach, he goes, okay, we're going to put this sled on, thing on level ground. We're going to just practice getting in. And uh, all the villagers walking by are going, these idiots don't even know how to get in a sled properly. <laughs> you know, what are these guys doing? And then he takes them back up on the hill and he says, okay, now try and do it while it's rolling. And so they try and do it while it's rolling, and eventually they get it, you know. And uh, they eventually qualify for the Olympics. And it's a really neat story 
of how these guys go from knowing absolutely nothing about a sport to, uh, to really accomplishing something noteworthy. And that, that brings me to a, um, my final point about, or one of my final points about athletes is that athletes, especially you see in the Olympics and stuff like that, they rarely go there representing themselves. An athlete usually represents some, a, a state or a city or a university <clears throat> or a region that they're proud to be part of. And that bears true with the Christian walk as well. We're representing the Lord. That's why we're called Christians, little Christ. We're here to represent Him. And there's passages that talk about us as being ambassadors of Christ. But these Jamaican fellows wanted nothing more than to represent their country in the Olympics. And the only coach they had on hand was a guy that taught bobsled. So they said, all right, we're learning bobsled because we want to represent our country. And I think it would be wise for Christians to remember as we go about our lives and exercising all this discipline, we're not doing it merely for our own benefit. We're doing it for the benefit of the church, and we're doing it to represent our Lord in the world at large. So don't forget who, we're, who we stand for. And uh, there's, there's a neat scene in the, in the movie in Cool Runnings where the coach... Um, uh, he ended his professional career a long time previous to becoming a coach because he was caught cheating. And so someone asked, one of the guys on the team said, Coach, why did you cheat? And he said, it's because winning became all important. And I forgot about my morals as a human being, and I forgot about what I represented. And he said that to the athlete, and the athlete took that to heart. We may be tempted to push ourselves up to look better than everyone else. But if that becomes our goal, rather than representing the Lord Jesus Christ, then we've lost sight of why we're here in the first place. And I think Timothy, uh, Timothy never lost sight of that. And I think Paul, in reminding him of calling himself an athlete, Timothy would have thought, oh yeah, I'm a soldier of Christ. I need to please the one that enlisted me as a good soldier. And as an athlete, I need to represent the, the Lord well. So let me give you a few practical tips for competition day. And uh, as, a, uh, as an illustration, I want to show you a video real quick. Um, it's something mo most of you may have seen already. It's a video of Usain Bolt running 100 meters. So uh, we're going to step back here for a second and just watch the awesome thing uh, that is Usain Bolt uh, run for a second. So Luke, you got that ready? Set. They get away first time. Tyson Gay right alongside Usain Bolt, but here he goes, streaking away already. It's Bolt all the way. He's looking round at Gay. Watch the clock. It's gold for Bolt. And again, he's done it again. A new world record for Usain Bolt. They world record. That's the fastest anyone has ever run 100 meters, 9.58 seconds. Now, 
Here's a tip for, compet for competition day. I, none of us are ever going to run 100 meters anywhere near the time that Usain Bolt ran it. I think my time is somewhere around 20 seconds, not nine <laughs> under 10. But something most people don't know about Usain Bolt is that he has one very obvious and critical flaw to his running that is overlooked because he's such a great sprinter. When Usain Bolt set the world record the first time, this is the last time he set it, that's, that's the current world record, but the first time he set the world record, he was the next to last guy out of the blocks. And he still set the world record. In this race that you just watched, he was the third to last out of the blocks. And he still ran the fastest 100 meters that anyone has ever run. So let me give you a tip. Even if you're a little late out of the blocks, you got the Lord on your side. And we can do greater things than Usain Bolt has done with his body. He's an amazing specimen of diligence and training and God-given physical abilities that are second to none. But I think too many Christians think, well, I don't have these amazing gifts. Usain Bolt's gifts are so amazing that he doesn't even have to be the first guy out of the blocks. But I think with the Lord on our side, we don't have to be the first guys out of the blocks either. I think that if we run to the best of our ability, that we'll win the crown and the Lord sees our efforts. It's not all about the finish line. It's about how you run according to the rules. And second of all, when we're out there sharing the gospel with people, there's going to be a lot of criticism because the gospel doesn't fit in this uh, world system that we live in. It doesn't fit in, uh, in what we're about. But I'm going to talk about a, a fellow that we're all familiar with because he's been used time and time again as an analogy of a Christian athlete, and that's Eric Little. And most people know the story about him not uh, deciding not to run on Sundays, but that's not actually where I want to go with Eric Little's story. You see, if you've ever watched <clears throat> the movie Chariots of Fire, you know that Eric Little had a very unique running style, and he would run with his head thrown back and his chin out, and he'd flail with his arms like a chicken, as some people called it. He, wouldn't, he didn't have a nice orderly running style. He kind of flailed with his arms like this. And people thought, ah, oh, his running style is terrible. That's got to slow him down. He was the fastest man in the world in the early 1920s. And uh, I'm going to read a little section. Um, there's this amazing article in The Guardian. It's online. And uh, they put together a list of um, top 50 absolutely stunning Olympic moments. And there's been a lot of really amazing moments in the Olympics. But Eric Little comes in number eight on this list of 50 of the most amazing uh, things to go on at the Olympics. And uh, they, they write in the article, I'm just going to read part of this uh, article that it, they wrote about him. It says in the article, he, Eric Little is remembered among lovers of athletics as probably the ugliest runner who ever won an Olympic championship. When he appeared in the heats of the 400 meters at Paris in 1924, 
his huge sprawling stride, his head thrown back and his arms clawing the air, moved the Americans and the other sophisticated experts to laughter. But Harold Abrams, who you know from uh, the Chariots of Fire movie as his main competitor, who won in 1924 in the 100-meter gold medal, the event Little famously refused to compete in because the preliminary heats were held on a Sunday, Sunday uh, Abrams surmised, people may shout their heads off about his appalling style. Well, let him. He gets there. And it reminds me that as we go about our, our Christian life, people may say, look, they have no style and they're sharing the gospel. It's rather appalling, actually, all their bias and their uh, closed-mindedness and their so on and so forth. And the truth is never closed-minded. But it may sound like an attack to people who prefer darkness rather than light. And so don't, when you get to, com- get to the competition, you can't let the criticism phase you. Um, there's an amazing story, um, not in the Olympics, of Eric Little running. And I want to put this out as another tip for game day. In 1923, this is before the Olympics, um, Eric Little ran a race in Stoke-on-Trent in England, and he ran a quarter-mile race. And it was an uh, emphasis to the Lord being with him and to the the power even of his uh, ungainly or uh, ridiculous running style. Uh, As he's running in a quarter-mile race, at the first bend, he tripped over the legs of English runner J.J. Gillies, falling off the track. By the time he was back on his feet, the last of the other runners were 30 yards away and moving fast. But Little attacked them with such a pace that he finally overtook Gillies three yards from the line to win before collapsing spent to the ground. You ever seen someone win a 400-meter race after getting knocked down and falling 30 yards behind? It's unbelievable. The article continues, The circumstances in which Little won the event made it a performance bordering on the miraculous. Veterans whose memories take them back 35 years, and in some cases even longer in the history of athletics, were unanimous in the opinion that Little's win on the quarter mile was the greatest ever track performance they had ever seen. So what's the takeaway from this? During the Christian life, the sprint, the marathon, whatever you want to call it, you may get knocked down. You may fall. It might be your fault. Or in Little's case, it was no fault of his. Someone else tripped him up. But whatever the reason, he found himself sprawled out on the infield of the track. And it would have been easy for him right there to just quit. That's it. We'll rerun it. I'll uh, I'll demand a, a, a retry since someone else tripped me up. He had every reason to quit. He was hopelessly far behind, 30 yards in a 400 yard race. It's too short to catch up. Little didn't let that stop him. I think he was praying as he stood up, and he was praying as he took his first steps, as he took bigger steps and faster strides and longer strides, and he said, Lord, help me out, because that's the sort of man 
Eric Little was. And three yards before the finish line, he caught the lead man and passed him for the win. It wasn't even for the Olympics. It wasn't even for a race that may have counted for that much. But Little gave it his all. And to everyone who witnessed that that day, they said it was the most miraculous event in sports they'd ever seen. Dear brothers and sisters, if you find yourself laying on the infield, please get up. Please start praying and running and see where that gets you. Don't be discouraged. I said this performance bordered on the miraculous. I don't think it bordered on the miraculous. I think it was the miraculous. I think the Lord was with Eric Little. And there's further evidence of that. Um, you, most of you know the story about how he wouldn't run in the 100 meters because some of the preliminary events were set during Sunday and he had a speaking engagement and he said, I'm going to honor the Lord rather than honor even his commitment to his country to represent them in the, the Olympics. He was widely regarded as an easy favorite for the 100 meters and for the 200 meters. But the 400 meters, he didn't originally uh, even come to the Olympics to compete in those. He wasn't regarded as the best in the world to run there. But one of his other um, British uh, comrades in running said, Little, I'd like you to take my place and run the 400 meters. And Little said, I have of his strategy for running the 400 meters. He says, I'm trained on the 100 and the 200 meters. So when I run 400 meters, here's what I do. I run the first 200 meters as fast as I can. And then I run the second 200 meters as fast as I can. <laughs> and so he ends up, finds himself in the final of the 400 meters in the Olympics. Clear underdog. With the brilliant strategy of running the first 200 meters as fast as he can and then the second 200 meters as fast as he can. That day in the Olympic finals, Eric Little set a world record in 1924. He was given the outside lane so that as he ran, he wouldn't be able to see any of his competitors as they came around the shorter inside distance and caught up with him. He was at a clear disadvantage. So all he had were his efforts and the Lord as he ran around that track. Couldn't see any of his competitors to know if he was being caught or if he was in an easy lead or anything. Couldn't pace himself by the other guys. Had to set his own pace. So Eric Little went out there, and after the starting gun, he ran the first 100 meters in 12 seconds. And he ran the second 100 meters in 12 seconds. And he ran the third 100 meters in 12 seconds. And then he ran the last 100 meters and 11.35 seconds and set a world record and blew away the field. And Eric Little famously had received the note before that event saying, those who honor me, him I will honor. It's a quote out of 1 Samuel. Eric Little was empowered by the Lord that day to run the 400 meters. And say what you will about his prowess, his physical training, his preparation, the Lord was clearly on his side. And it's an amazing 
testimony to trusting in the Lord no matter what. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in. Whether you're knocked down in a race you didn't train to compete on or find yourself the laughing stock of the other competitors and of the fans. Don't let it get you down. Didn't get Eric Little down. So my conclusion is this. Two things. One, compete for the crown. Remember that we have eternal reward at stake. It's not a perishable crown, but imperishable that the Lord has prepared for us. And second of all, remember that as you sprint for the finish, remember that the Lord will bear you up on wings of eagles. And he's with those who focus on him. Take to heart that that scripture in Hebrews where it says in verse 2 of chapter 12, we're supposed to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, Eric Little, as he ran that 400 meters with all the rest of the field behind him catching up, he didn't have anyone to look to. All he had look in front of him was the finish line and the Lord. And I think in our Christian life, we need to remember to focus on him. Let's not be distracted by all the things that in the rest of his life. Sure, there's a lot of nice things in this world that the Lord has given to us enjoy, to enjoy, but there is no greater enjoyment than enjoying him and fellowship with him and knowing that we're in his will. I can tell you from personal experience, there is nothing better than knowing that you're in the Lord's will, doing what he wants you to do. Those moments don't just border on the miraculous, they are the miraculous. And so let's remember, as Paul encouraged Timothy, to compete for the prize. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the encouragement that we've received in the scriptures this morning. Lord, we don't want to, remember, don't want to forget who we're competing for and what we're competing for. And Lord, with that in mind, we pray that we go out about this week disciplined, constantly drawing upon you for our strength and sustenance. And Lord, looking to you to be in your will, to compete according to the rules and know what we believe in. And Lord, that we might spread your gospel and honor you this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.